0: Mike Lesseter here from Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer magazines. Thanks for joining us for How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipments Entrepreneurs, sponsored by Osmondson Manufacturing. Today's conversation is with Steve Martin of Kentucky-based Martin Industries, who joined up with his dad, Howard, in the early 1990s to create what would become a leading planter attachment company, despite some very rough starts on the farm, in the business, and in the courtroom. We used to have conversations about that term, thinking outside the box. He would make
1: the comment, well, if you were never taught what the box is, you don't know that you're not thinking
0: outside of it. That's Steve Martin talking about his dad, Howard, an inventive farmer who hit dire times and got into the equipment business only after his invention was parked on a shelf at John Deere. Howard later relicensed his own invention to reluctantly form a manufacturing enterprise, even though he had no manufacturing know-how whatsoever. Just an idea and some encouragement from a neighbor in the late Eugene Keaton who many of you will recognize for his own inventions of the finger pickup mechanism for planters as well as the famous seed firmer. There are some great stories here today from Steve about bootstrapping on the heels of failure, a row unit and a card table at the National Farm Machinery Show, and the astonishing level of trust that farmers placed in this unknown father-son team. The checks they handed to Howard at that February show nearly 30 years ago spurred the Martins to quickly pencil out the jigs and fixtures on the car ride home. We caught up with Steve during the National No-Tillage Conference. While Dad Howard was a late-minute scratch for the interview, you'll still get to hear from him in a special bonus recording. On an earlier visit to the farm shop where those inventions were conceived and built, our team had mic'd up Howard. Stay tuned to the end to hear the voice of this farm equipment legend and how his company has achieved a startling return on assets by demonstrating honesty, shipping out new models at no charge when they needed to, and following the golden rule. So here we go, our How We Did a Conversations podcast with Steve Martin of Martin Industries. I've heard the Martin name. I I was three years old when dad started No Till Farmer and okay. as I've kind of grown up in this, but Martin name has been on that that yeah. coffee table newsletter for the as it long sure as has. I can remember. And, yeah. Uh,
1: years and years ago. And I was telling Darren earlier that I grew up watching dad read that newsletter, you know, and when we first started building them, I was in my early twenties, I guess. So I made a comment, we should advertise in that and he said they won't. They don't take ads in this newsletter yeah. thing. So that made a definite impact, you know, on what your dad was trying to do. Spread the gospel, so to speak.
0: That's mm-hmm. <laughs> interesting. I worked out of college. I went to work for my dad for a short period of time before I, he, he was going to kick me out of the, out of the nest. But <laughs> there was a Coulter report that I was working on in, like, 91. Mm-hmm. And I didn't—you guys were such a big part of that that I thought you'd had this long— history and as I was researching that was about the time things really got off the ground commercially.
1: Right, yeah, it was was one of those God things, you know, because had we come out with that ten years earlier, you know, the market wasn't there Uh, and it it hit about the same time the government was talking about taking away subsidies if you weren't, you know, no-tilling certain soil types and it was just a good fit, just everything just kind of fell in place and the floods in 93, as unfortunate as they were, we had a vendor in central Illinois. The business just exploded between us and our competitors. I mean, we were all struggling to get product out. And we got hooked up with uh, this vendor in central Illinois there around Havana. And due to the floods, delaying planning, you know, we got to send out a bunch more product than we would have if it hadn't been for the flood. So that was one of those situations where uh, had the weather been normal, we wouldn't have probably had a very much many sales that year compared to what it was. So I watched dad, you know, build the first one and then the subsequent patents and then the deer execs coming down and buying it. And we never planned or he never planned to be a manufacturer. Uh, we planned to collect the royalty and keep farming and raising tobacco and such as we did, but they decided to put it on the shelf. So then a couple of years went by and they didn't build it. So he calls them up and asked to uh, license somebody to build it and that when he saw the version they were building, he realized that there was a probably a good chance that one that light duty might affect the market if somebody didn't build one that actually worked. And he was the one that knew what would work and what wouldn't. You know, he said, you want to, what do you think about building some of these? And that's kind of how we got started. So I tell the joke, and it's really true, that had we have known what we were getting into, we would have known that we had no business trying, you know. But once you get your feet in it, you know, and you got money tied up here and there and all these problems. Start arising because we had no experience in manufacturing. We were too dumb to know we weren't supposed to be able to do it, is is the way I put it. We um, made it work.
0: This will be fun. Been looking forward to this and and, and capturing your story. Okay.
1: Sounds good. I'll try to do my best.
0: Simple question right off the bat, how do you define what what it is that Martin Industries does?
1: I'll try not to drag that out too long, but basically we try to make no-till farming work for our own purposes in our own operations and then see a need for some of our innovations and across the country and even into other countries. So we focus on designing planter attachments specifically for no-till use that will uh, improve farmers' yields and, and stands and whatnot.
0: So very, very specific niche. You're going to go deep in the no-till yes, attachments. Very right? specific niche. Yeah. Tell us about the farming operation, and you've got other. Mm-hmm. You've got a brother and, and right. dad in the
1: business. Right. We grew up. My dad farmed a couple thousand acres. We raised tobacco, corn, wheat, soybeans, and in uh, the late '80s, when he developed the first one, we were trying to get back into no-tilling. So uh, my brother and dad and I kind of worked together on this. And then later on, my sister, who was a teacher, she came over to uh, run the office after things kind of took off some. So it's been a family involvement from the get-go. And my mom, even uh, when we were filling orders during the rush time, after the UPS truck comes by and picks up, We would still be filling orders and taking calls so she had a deal worked out with the local hub where she would just show up in her truck and just back in and anything we had packed uh, after they picked up they would just unload it she didn't have to handle the packages so it's been a true family organization from day one
0: so that it was 90 was it about 91 Yes. How old would you have been?
1: I would have been 21 and uh, I kind of got bit by this row cleaner bug early on and it kind of really I do farm a little but my brother he's the big farmer and you know I kind of do this and but I still farm a little just to stay engaged but it I got bit pretty hard by the Grow cleaner bug, I call it.
0: What were you planning on doing at age fifteen or so before yeah. the the company took off?
1: I thought I would be a mechanic. I seemed to do a lot of that and made some spending money doing that. You know, throughout high school, I also really liked computers. Did some minor coding, you know, back in the when Tandy had their own brand and stuff. So all these electronics and. Uh, Mechanical things have always have kind of been an almost God-given talent, maybe. Mm-hmm. So if I could be so brave to say that, but it comes easy to me compared to some people. Mm-hmm. You know, so hands-on type stuff.
0: Talk about a tough, tough chapter uh, here was when the, the the farming operation had some dark days in the, mm-hmm. in the early '80s. Correct. Correct. Yeah, we uh,
1: that was a pretty tough time. I was a senior in high school we had to uh, let go of some ground you know and, and some equipment and kind of restructure and uh, that was about the time dad really just kind of buckled down and honed in on this row cleaner and uh, i remember he, he didn't have a pickup truck what farmer you know doesn't have a pickup truck but that's the kind of man he is you know he puts everybody else in front so learned a lot you know from him but
0: so Howard developed this and mm-hmm. sold it to to, to... to Deer. Yeah, can you walk me through that? That's sure,
1: a- yeah. Eugene Keaton, who everybody knows, is a neighbor of ours, and he had sold Deer finger pickup mechanism and some other things, I guess. So he was always coming by and chatting, visiting, and Dad showed him, you know, what he was working on. And he, in turn, you know, we get a patent, and Eugene connects us, and those guys come down and end up buying it so to speak, and then promising a royalty, of course, for each one they sold. Which this is in that bad economic farming time, and they, the word we got back was they decided they didn't want another $300 a row attachment, so they just kind of put his idea on the shelf. Well, then uh, along about 90, 91, he calls them up and says, hey, I need some income out of my my patent, could you license another company to make it, and they did. Then when he saw that, he was like, oh my gosh, you know, we need to show them one that is heavy built and and that I know will work. I was working uh, as a mechanic at the John Deere dealer, Raider Implement, over in Hopkinsville. At this time, his farming had cut way back.
0: You needed to be working in town, I think. I
1: needed to, yeah, be working in town, and then I helped, you know, on the farm, and we raised tobacco at the same time. So, uh, I was really ready to make something work to get out of. I hated the tobacco. You know, Mm. I was just I hated raising tobacco. It was a good cash crop. I felt like there was a better way to to make a living and this turned out, you know, to be, it's like I was born for it, Mm -hmm. you know, and uh, I didn't, I never considered college because I didn't see myself in a position where I thought I could use it and turns out, you know, that's been a hang up at times, but there's no faster way, I mean, to learn as is on the job, you know, as you need it and I felt obligated not only for my success, but for my, my family. I took it very serious hmm. you know, about getting orders out and the quality. Yeah, it's yeah. Been, a, been a long road, but learned a lot.
0: Yeah, that's sort of fulfilling, rewarding experience from be there from the day one and yes. plow yes. through a, a rough start too. Yeah,
1: we, we had a very rough start. I think some of the, we couldn't get an operating loan for this business. So I think the cash that we used, and some of it was from uh, my brother and I doing some custom spraying, some of that was there. And then when we got to Louisville, Billy Joe Miles got us in at the National Farm Machinery Show on the second day. I think it was in 91, might have been 92. But all I remember is the only one that we had built our way was sitting on that card table with that little wooden frame holding mm-hmm. it up. And Dad and I come up and we set it up and, you know, we're just overwhelmed with, with people, you know, and I see him over there and people passing checks and stuff, and I'm getting more and more nervous because I know when I get home <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I gotta make that happen. Yeah. You know, so I remember on the drive home he told me how much he had guys had paid him You know, and I was just blown away that they would trust a stranger, you know, with a check for something that from an unheard of company. We dug in and my brother and I, it was not uncommon for us to work. Uh, We were used to it in farming, particularly harvest and planting, you know, working around the clock. And we did the same thing in this, put in a
0: lot of hours. What did you guys talk about on the drive home after he collected all those checks? (laughs) I got to get to work
1: (laughs) (laughs) you got to get these parts made and uh, very excited because it looked like god was providing just a real a real strong sense of uh, appreciation
0: what was your manufacturing capability like walk us through what the the shop looked like yeah
1: oh yeah that's a good one there we had a uh, bandsaw one wire welder which we had just bought (laughs) and uh, I had tried to get a job at one of the factories and they had went through their welding class while I was still working at the dealership. It was a new factory, building truck frames and paying good and all this. So I had just went through all of their classes about the same time this happened. So I had a, I had that going for me. I, I knew how a wire welder was supposed to run. I don't know if you've ever seen any of the antique. Old drill presses mm-hmm. that run on the big wide flat leather belts. We had uh, we had one of those, I mean it was way back there and we rigged up a motor on it and our neighbor who had a little machine shop and he was our cousin, he had it mounted on an old hay baler wheel, like the fire wheel, mm-hmm. that was the base and had this table and then that old drill head and that's what we used to drill the holes for the mounting plates, you know, and, and then uh, I built some little fixtures to hold that, and then all this starts kind of rolling in my mind, and and then I start thinking, well, wow, Lee, how did how does GM build that fender, you know, and or that wheel, and things just, you know, I really became interested in manufacturing, mm-hmm. and so that that's how we started, and we bought a handheld plasma cutter, like a 100 amp plasma. Once we exhausted the supply of wheels that Deer had, and we had the wheel blanks cut and used that hand plasma to bevel the ends and that got us through uh, second year and then third year I, I borrowed money to get a uh, plasma table and a uh, CNC milling machine to make the wheels and kind of just took off from there. But I, I sold that old drill press to one of my neighbors and uh, I'm going to
0: try to go back and get it sometime yeah. because it that's where it all started. So. It- your dad, Howard, wasn't really a manufacturing guy. He was just a, mm-hmm. a, a farmer with an inventive mind. And- yes, a very, very
1: creative, inventive mind. I mean, I just seeing back. I, I took for granted, you know, how his mind worked and was always trying stuff different, unconventional. We used to have conversations about that term, thinking outside the box. And he would make the comment, well, if you were never taught what the box is, you don't know that you're not thinking outside of it. Yeah. So similar, you know. We neither one had had any any formal training, you know, in this. But out of problems and necessity to solve, you know, is what drives innovation. Or at least for us,
0: it was. So he was lucky that he had a son who was gifted in this uh, well, design and manufacturing I side. I, right? I,
1: you know, I, you said that I didn't. <laughs> and uh, now I I feel like. Uh, I had a very a, a great teacher and uh, someone to learn from, and I just—it's like what like I said before. It's what I was born to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't—I can't imagine myself doing anything else you know, other than farming.
0: And that's a theme with these these stories: that if we don't have the right people in in place, that, right. that these businesses don't go. You know, right. if, he, if he doesn't have you that can step in with the sure. know-how, and you know, he, he sent me an email.
1: Oh, did uh, he?
0: bragging on you, oh. and, and, and I'll have to tell you a couple things that he oh. said there. But okay. <laughs> yeah, he got this thing going, he said, are you ready to, to do this with me? Yeah, I mean,
1: that's his way of telling me we're going to do it, <laughs> but, <Yeah>. you know.
0: Do <laughs> you remember that conversation?
1: I do. Uh, he, we were stripping tobacco, we were still raising tobacco, so that's what we would do after that job, or after quit that, that was back full time. So we were in there stripping tobacco, the and he's telling me about what he saw, and what he thinks we need to do and, and you know want to know if i was interested and i'm like yeah <laughs> yeah i'm interested so i don't remember the exact words but i remember it feeling like you know that he he wanted my help and uh i was definitely down for that yeah. and, and my brother too you know it just people have different talents this seemed to be the road i was supposed mm-hmm. to take and you know for i've wasted some years uh not driving innovation in the company but that's all in the past and we're we've got several new products out recently and we have some more planned to release in 18 and some maybe in 19 just depending on how backed up the the engineering guys are
0: so if we were describing what martin is like today Mm -hmm. you know the size of company what people would see if they, they drove up tell us about what they'd see at your place today.
1: Okay. Well, right now we're running around 30 employees on two shifts. We try to do as much manufacturing in-house as possible. That's from a this style of manufacturing, I call batch type manufacturing. I read in a magazine one time. It's like trying to organize mass chaos. So, you know, our best effort can lead to one component that we don't have, and we can't ship an order for that. So in the early days when I depended on outside shops, this was very frustrating. So today, we have just this year, uh, upgraded all of our manufacturing equipment and replaced three robot welders with with just one. So uh, we've got some of the uh, most up-to-date, world-class manufacturing machines you know, it's out there and that includes a new uh, five axis milling machine with a pallet changer. So like our new little razor wheels, we can change styles of that, by just uploading a program and not have to do a lot of hard fixturing. So we're really enjoying that. We can change around back and forth. And then uh, we just put in a pair of uh, 400 millimeter horizontal machining centers and then a pair of uh, verticals that are comparable in size, and our turning centers, we've got three turning centers. The one that makes the axles has a bar feeder and a parts conveyor on it, and a measuring probe, so we load up the bar feeder and go home, and it'll sit there and run and spit parts out. And then uh, the fabrication bay, where the plasma table is, we've got a, we just upgraded it to the latest high-definition plasma, so our cut quality is a lot better. It'll burn 8 foot wide by 24 foot long sheets and with, with two heads so it's sitting over there running by itself. What I hope people would say when they, when they come in and, and walk through, and we do a lot of tours and we welcome that, is it's clean, it's well organized, and the employees, you know, I'm very picky about, my guys, you know, and and we go through a 90-day probationary period in the first 90, and attendance, attitude, you know, then, you know, they they don't make the cut, and it's their attitude about their, their work. There's a scripture, and I should have remembered it, that we're planning to use in our quality manual, and it's basically do all your work like you're doing it for God rather than for man, and I look for that. and and the guys, and and not all of them have it, but the ones that that come up, like my production manager, he's uh, been with me 20 years. He came uh, in, he had dropped out of school, he just wanted a job, and so I put him on the worst job we had, and that was usually a couple weeks and guys were gone, you know. It was a revolving door, and next thing I knew, he'd been back there about a year, and he was wanting to learn about programming the machines and stuff, so just a really good attitude and this is a good example of what I look for Mm -hmm. in guys and now, I mean, he does the whole thing.
0: What's your square footage there?
1: We're 48,000.
0: We'll get back to the story of Martin Industries in a moment, but first a word about Osmondson Manufacturing which supported our time, travel, and production in these chronicles of family-run farm equipment manufacturers. Osmonson has a storied family history of its own dating back to 1903. Visit them at www.osmundson.com. And now, back to more with Steve and the Martin Industries story. This fascinating part two includes personal words about his dad, Howard, how the red ink bleeding manufacturer dealt with problems to eliminate any coffee shop negativity, and what Steve describes as his best and his worst days in the business. And remember to stay tuned to the very end for a special interview with Howard Martin himself packing a lot of punch in a quick six-minute recording. Where did you discover your love of manufacturing? Uh, That's
1: a good question and we had, there was a shop in the county that had CNC machines that made our axles and hubs for us in the second year. And uh, Fred Roberts was his name, and he should have been a vocational school teacher because he loved to teach. And he took me under his wing. I mean, we spent night after night, he'd come over and we'd just sit and talk and he taught me how to cut metal and what this does and what that steel does. and, and And I owe him and I tell him every time I see him. I said, "Fred, I wouldn't. We wouldn't be here without you." But mm-hmm. he saw something and and wanted to. I owe him a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was kind of a mentor, you know, to me. And I remember uh, sitting at nights with these uh, these books that where you buy cutting tools, end mills, and different things like that. And this is when we were just getting started. And I'm flipping page by page, and I'm trying to figure out what I would do if I had that tool, you know, what does that tool do, and just learning how, how the world manufactures, you know, and I, I owe uh, a lot of that to him, and uh, he's been a very positive influence.
0: For someone who doesn't know Howard, how would you describe your dad? Tell us a little bit of a yeah. look into his world.
1: He's very humble. Not a lot of uh, drama type, you know. He's he's a man of few words, and, and when he says something, you very well take it for the gospel, you know. And uh, he expects the men, you know, that that work for him to uh, have a certain attitude about their work and, and care about what they do. Some of the farm hands I've heard say that when I was a kid, they were his helpers, you know, and. I was talking to one of them just a while back and and he said, you know, your dad was the best man I ever worked for and he'd been a farmhand his whole life. Mm. And he said he would always do more of the work than me. Like if it was a physical job, dad wasn't one to stand to the side and point. He's Mm. not a pointer, he's a doer. He's a hands-on and uh, I have just a tremendous amount of respect for him.
0: So early on, he must have been doing a lot of the interchange with the the dealers and out in public not just in the in the back shop right
1: right yeah i was i was in the shop and occasionally you know on the phone but he was he caught most of the calls and uh, you know one of the things he drove into me and you know kids and they get a little bit of success maybe or in my case we get to thinking we know more than our parents do you know Mm -hmm. funny how that works yeah when the older i get the smarter (laughs) <laughs> I see him, but for a while, you know how kids are. But anyway, so he would he would be writing these orders up and uh, sending them out, and they'd have the NC on the bottom of it. I'm like, no charge. You know, and we'd go fuss at him. and say, damn, why are you giving these parts away? And he said, he would say it over and over again until it finally stuck in me. He said, I do not want anybody to buy my parts, and for whatever reason, they can't make it work, and they go to the coffee shop and they complained. He said, so we're going to warranty them, even in some cases if they're out of warranty and if they can't make it work for whatever reason, and that includes in some cases me driving all night to get to Western Iowa to help a guy who our product's not working out for. We'll exhaust our resources and then we'll just write him a check. And that was hard for me when we were struggling financially to understand. But that built our name, yeah. you know, and one year, I have to take part of the blame for this. We had, we weren't familiar with Case IH row units. I'd, I'd never been around one, but we had a, a neighbor that wanted a set of row cleaners for his Case IH planter. And he, very well respected man. And, and he tells me where the tool shed is. And dad and I go over there and I've got my ruler and measuring and, and we produce a bracket and he buys them, puts them on. We never go to the field he reports back they work great. So we put it in the catalog. I sold, uh, I say I, we, four or five hundred rows of them. And when they got scattered around through the Corn Belt, the phone starts ringing. They were not in a no-till situation. They worked fine. But that large diameter wheel, when they were out in the tilled or minimum till ground, they couldn't get it up high enough. And they were mad and I, I was, this whole treating customers right thing was just really starting to settle in. I said, Dad, let me design one that actually works for that planter and let's get them, let's swap out with them. Let's have them send them back and we'll send them a new one. And I'm not saying I'm the one that made that decision, but it was a conversation going back mm-hmm. and forth. And I, I wanted to make a road cleaner for that planter that fit that planter and, and we did. Subsequently, and that year we had, we just barely broke even in in that year. And over time, we found uses for those that came back, but that uh, just sealed our name, Mm -hmm. you know, that that we would take back that much product and and send them a totally new one. Word got out
0: fast on that, I think. Yeah, Yeah.
1: it did. So we've, uh, we've always known we would never be the top guy, and we're okay with that. But we want to be the best, you know, and, and I think in a lot of situations, not all, that, that we have that name, you know, with our, our product. So and that's something that's always been real uh, important to me. I, I, I make the joke that if I can't do it right, I'm not going to try, you know, and it, g- it gets frustrating with people around me because I have trouble finally signing off and saying, OK, that's close enough or that's good enough. I've taken that approach to this, and things that we learned uh, about how much you can intersect and when that's good and when that's not, you know, and at first glance it's a simple attachment. But there's a lot of ways you can screw that thing up, you know, if you, and it's through the trial and error ordeal. So.
0: So describe what the first 5 years were like and how long it took to get into the black ink you know right. tell us what the early years were like
1: Yeah they were they were pretty tough and uh we didn't see any return for at least the first 3 we uh, we took what was first year we sold a thousand units and we took that money and next year we we built 4000 and you know we just kept flipping. And I remember the uh, when Dad, the I think my monthly salary back then was like eight hundred and fifty dollars a month or something. Just a, mm. a barely, you know that was that was the way we lived. Yeah. we were a very bootstrapped. Bootstrapped. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when we finally got ahead enough, and he formed his partnership, and I got a check, <laughs> I was like, wow. Yeah. So you know that felt really good. uh, And it didn't happen overnight, but I think deep down, and and I've said this before, I don't think I was ever doing it for the money. You know, it was the thought of us designing and making something that somebody else would appreciate and like, and uh, hopefully we wouldn't go broke doing it. Although there was uh, uh, another bad period where we got in a lawsuit, and that was a pretty frightening time, but... It took about three years for it to change our uh, living, you know, the way
0: we lived. And when we were going back, when we were talking about the early days, I mean, you kind of had a mix of, you had to c- convince a number of people. You had farmers, you had dealers, mm-hmm. you had other manufacturers that, mm-hmm. that you were counting on to get you off the ground. How, mm-hmm. how did you go to market? in that early chapter.
1: You know, that's that's all Dad, that's all I can say, and, and God, because we did not market. We we did not know, you know, we knew No-Till Farmer was the kind of people we wanted to read, but you, we couldn't get an ad in the newsletter. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so, well, that was out. So, uh, you know, it, I say it time and time again, you know, God just lined everything up just right. Mm. You know, it, it's nothing short of a miracle. The uh publicity he got for being a farmer, inventor, manufacturer, carried us. You know, it was, he was always in the magazine about this or that, and then uh, selective, a little bit of advertising in select areas, and uh, word of mouth, it takes a while, but word of mouth uh, eventually works. And two, you gotta consider this, there was no capital, so the worst thing we could do is spend a hundred grand advertising something that we couldn't then supply Mm -hmm. so it it grew uh based our marketing grew as our numbers increased and and profit was available you know to spend that and early on there was no literally no marketing Mm -hmm. it was just pre-publicity, being available, and being available,
0: and the product people were willing to talk about,
1: right, and, and making sure that it worked, you know, that, it's finally sunk in, but, you know, as my 20s to mid-30s, I thought, uh, all these great ideas, and, and I would build one, or, or draw it up, and present it to him, and he's like, well, does it work? I said, I don't know, but it looks good and it fits on that (laughs) planer, you Mm -hmm. know, and he said, no, he said, you need to get it out and and put it in the dirt, and nine out of ten of those ended up in the scrap pile, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so Mm -hmm. making sure we didn't put something out that wasn't going to work, that's very hard Mm -hmm. to do as a younger, you know, very driven, wanting to succeed.
0: We're talking, boy, how many years is that now, 20? 91 that's 91. what was your best day
1: you know I think that ride home from the show you know that that's up there at the top and and that just was really impressed upon me and then in later years approval from my dad on a design or an improvement you know that was something that I would wake up in the night and just have stuff hit me and in one case I actually got up and dressed and went and and made one, you know, and then to be able to present something that was approved and functioned and that we
0: actually sold—that uh, was was hard to beat that. Thing. Yeah. Conversely, you know, I know some about the the suit and how you guys won it, but didn't see anything out of it. Was right. Is that one of the worst days, or was there something? Yes,
1: that that drive home from Rockford, the three of us, it was mom and. Myself and dad, we probably didn't say six
0: words. And that's it. Very costly, set you back. You had to come, you know, bootstrap again, I Mm -hmm. I take it, right? Was there ever any thought of not doing what you did and put your head down, just get it again? Was there, was that? If you're
1: asking, did we consider just shutting the doors? No,
0: we weren't. And uh,
1: that was never in any of us's mind. It's like... uh, The whole industry, I feel, we feel connected to, you know, and and though we had this one guy, you know, nearly break us through this uh, frivolous lawsuit, we had enough loyal customers that believed in us, you know, to to know we just had to bootstrap up and get it done, so. When it was later uh, reversed, that would have been one of the top days. You could call a number and listen to a recording, because this was in the uh, Washington on a 7 panel. you couldn't go. You just, they, it was on the docket, and you got to call later and hear a recording with the results, and that was a pretty good day. Lesson learned, lived, and won't be forgotten, and I'm just glad we survived it. Uh, Kinsey come, came along. Uh, I think 93, maybe 94, I'm not sure exactly, but uh, that was uh, another really good day. And and I watched my dad negotiate with with Harry Deckler and when they looked at our facility, I mean, John Kinzenbaum and Harry Deckler, I have to give them a tremendous amount of credit for our success because they let us build uh, their row cleaner because we had a license, you know, build it. Their work carried us through the summers. You know, it, uh, it was uh, a godsend. Mm-hmm. You know? So we were able to tool up, keep the same guys year-round and, and just keep on rolling. That drive home from Rockford, that was pretty rough. It took a while, but it, it was finally reversed and still done a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. But it, it taught me so much about patent law. You know, it, it was invaluable. I think one of the few conversations we had on the drive home was, well, son, you just got a crash course in patent litigation, mm-hmm. you know, and what a patent it will, is good for and what it's not. And and so I would have sure liked to have paid for that lesson, uh, that education, another way. Right, <laughs> <you> <laughs> right. Know, but it did have a plus side to it. Personally, I think it made me more driven to... Uh, Maybe out engineer or outthink those guys on on some in some other areas, if there is such
0: a thing. Day to day, tell us what what Howard's role is with the company and what yours is.
1: Dad is pretty well retired at this point. I talk to him daily through text, email. I bounce most all significant decisions off of him, but uh, he's the uh, LLC mm-hmm. manager. I'm the president of of Martin Industries and one of the LLC members, along with uh, my other family members. He's pretty much out uh, at yeah. home, kind of retired type. I run new product ideas by him, because uh, we've built literally dozens of things that we thought were marketable, and we would present them to dad. We'd do a demo or something, and he like, yeah, but, you know, let's not get out so many models that things uh, becomes unclear on which parts our dealers need to stock, and we're already kind of struggling in that area. So he's played a big role in the financial and business management side of things, and, and he's taught me a lot. Uh, I had the drive and to do the legwork on the manufacturing side, but I, his One of his other genius areas was in the marketing or our business model, which was non-traditional, I think. Magazines such as yourself and different ones picked him up, done articles, interviews, word of mouth, and we always made sure we took care of that customer, whatever that meant. Later on, we would start buying some ads and stuff and uh, not really the way you see ag company grow from a regional to an international Mm -hmm. as as we are now uh, with staying at home type Mm -hmm. thing. But uh, in the last year I've I've hired two outside guys Michael Musselman, I think you've met, he's a VP of Sales and Marketing based out of Goodfield. He's out knocking on doors. Tom Patterson, he stays out on the road. Uh, He's sometimes gone 20 or 30 days, Mm -hmm. you know, at a stretch, do a show in this part of the country and then drive here and do that. So we're, until we had some new products, uh, we didn't see the need in doing a lot of that. But now that we've got a few new products, we felt like, I feel like the business model that he put together uh, worked really well getting us to where we're at. Mm and I feel like I'm not being a good steward of what God has provided me if I don't go out and push and owe it to employees, my community, customers, and and whatnot.
0: How do you fill your time? Are you on the floor You in SolidWorks or CAD or with salespeople? Yep, it's all of the
1: above. Unfortunately, I don't get to spend as much time on the floor as I used to. and I really enjoy uh, programming the machines and of course now we've got so many and so much we're doing them offline with Mastercam but we still, I still like getting out there and cutting. I like to cut chips, you know. We've got my little prototype corner about the size of half this room and I like to get out there and tinker with stuff but anymore. Traditionally, we would fabricate prototypes and then go to CAD and maybe do some 2D CAD to burn a shape, but fabricate everything else. Now we start in there. We've got uh, most of the row units modeled. Osgar, i an engineer, and myself, uh, we spend a lot of time in SOLIDWORKS uh, working out some of this and uh, going back to the uh, first plasma machine I bought. I ordered that thing and I understood that drew something and it, you know, DXF and followed it. And I had uh, what they called Auto Sketch, you know, AutoCAD, everybody hears about, and it's very expensive. Auto Sketch was $100, you know, and I could run, it was, I went through the tutorial, you know, and, and learned how to do the different lines and arcs and whatnot, and that was a turning point. Seeing that and, and making that work from there, you know. Now we're full D, three D, mm. you know, on everything. And uh, the the sales guys talk. I spend a lot of time on emails. It Seems like that's all I do is is email and talk on the phone anymore. And some days I just get frustrated. And I, I, when it's farming season, I get to escape and go do that. And. Mm. It's, it's kind of, when I start getting irritable, they know in the office, they say, why don't you go do something? Yeah. <laughs> I so yeah. so I, I, I can't take but so much of that yeah. type work. But, but yeah, it's solid modeling, uh, emailing. I catch the overflow sales calls and the tough sales calls. Yeah.
0: Because as business has grown, it's requiring more of you, even yes, a few years ago. you're right, exactly.
1: Before, I, I didn't have to do so much of that. Yeah. The new products, it's amazing. You know, when I conceive, like the razor wheel, I think, yeah, that's, no, that's not an assembly, I just we get the model just right. Uh, my engineer, he tweaked that, you know, from my concept, and we burn it, and you think that's the end of it. but. Yeah, especially with ISO nine thousand and one, we're trying to get that certification. The document trail, you know, that follows that, even that simple part, is overwhelming to me at some time. So I find myself tied up more and more with marketing materials. Even though we use a great firm out of St. Louis, uh, Engel. I think you're familiar mm-hmm. with them. Yep, they've really took us to another level with our uh, our ads and stuff. But supplying him with the information and uh, the images, uh, it's, it's taken quite a bit of my time, but it's some of the best time I've spent in the last five, six years is, mm-hmm. is stepping our game up in that department.
2: I'm Frank Lesseter and I've been editor of No-Till Farmer since we started it in 1972. Since I've been involved with no-till practically from the start, I've put together a book with over 400 pages called From Maverick to Mainstream, A History of No-Till Farming. It's the personal stories of the people, the innovations, and the influence that have saved the soil and, quite honestly, have saved the family farm. The book's got 416 pages, 650 photographs, 125 charts, figures, and tables, and we have a foreword in the book. It was written by John Young, who's the son of the late Harry Young, the first American farmer to try no-till way back in 1962. I plan to autograph copies of the book for those who request it, so make sure to order your copy at www.notillfarmer.com slash history or order by phone by calling 800-277-1570. If you're in the no-till at all, this is a great opportunity to take a look at what's happened in the past.
0: 1991, you you come back full-time, you're, you're rolling up the sleeves and doing this. What did you think the business would be capable of? What was your dream at that point?
1: You know, I never saw it where it's at, you know. Uh, we were we started out just trying to save the market for it because we wanted at least a few people to see one that worked. It wasn't until, early around, 99 or 2000 that I ever considered spending any significant money, uh, like on a building or something. And and, that, and that's a good point to bring up. We were we were marvelled, at the beginning of this on how. One of our competitors, who uh, is a very, the founders of very good background in manufacturing and in engineering, could spend what we thought it took to have a mold or a die made to make something that we could fabricate. And it may not have been as pretty, but we didn't have that money tied up in that mold. We didn't mm. have any money to tie up in a mold or a die. So we're hard tooling, uh, Having other shops build fixtures and dyes, that was out of the way. I did all that. Mm-hmm. That like was one of the things you yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, keeping our costs down, and uh, we we've built all of that. And uh, not until we switched over to some castings in the last uh, ten or fifteen years that we paid for any mold. I made a mold for one of our aluminum parts. And, plant next door who I did work for. They ran it and they kinda told me what they wanted out of the mold and Mm -hmm. so that was our first one but I didn't pay for it, Mm -hmm. I made it myself. But that, the volumes that we're at now, uh, you just can't not, you know, do some of that, so. Mm -hmm.
0: 2000 is when you made the significant facility investment. Mm -hmm. What was the day that you realized this is gonna be a significant business?
1: When I realized that we were still shipping a little bit of product even in the middle of the summer, and the phone was still ringing. What there, year would that have been? That would have been in the mid to late 90s. We were working out of two 40 by 100 buildings. The first one was a pole barn. Started out a 40 by 60 and I ordered that cutting machine and I had to build 40 foot onto it for it. And then We literally fabricated another 40 by 100 after we got the plasma table set up. Mm. And no joke, we would uh, forklift machines in and out and tarp them when they were out as we needed to run parts. That's how cramped for room Mm. we were. And to get material into the bandsaw, the truck couldn't back in. We'd set it off on the ground this is some farmer ingenuity right here, and we'd we'd take a forklift, chain around one end, and then the other one on the other end, and we'd snake that into the building, you know, <laughs> to get it in there to to lay it down. So we were pretty cramped, and we needed room, and we had some some capital, and uh, I had gotten my machines paid off. Uh, Dad said, I don't want any more buildings out here that are going to be. Worthless, basically, you know, from the size structure we needed, you just wouldn't wouldn't do it out there. So, a friend of mine who had a successful tool and die shop helped us make some parts early on. He was telling me about the Kentucky Economic uh, Development Office, and they had supplied him the money to build uh, his building at a very low interest rate. Well. In this case, we had the money, but this time, so what they offered was a tax incentive uh, on the first structure. Uh, it, the state tax breaks basically paid for it, and then we doubled it, and they kicked in again. So our facility pretty well, the state that Kentucky paid for. Yeah, we definitely didn't want to tie up any capital in something that was not going to have any resale potential, Mm -hmm. such as another building out on the farm. And I thought too, at that time, I was doing a lot of work for other facilities in the area. It's always in the back of my mind, every time I'd buy a machine, I'd think if a better mousetrap comes out and our business goes to nothing, am I good enough with this machine? Am I gonna be good enough to go out and compete and do world-class machine work and I, I had to tell myself that I was, mm-hmm. or that I was, had that ability if I chose to. So right. that was, that drove every financial decision. And you know, we were always, especially after that drive back from Rockford, mm-hmm. you know, we, you had to really think things through and uh, have a plan B if somebody come out with something that made our product obsolete.
0: Another theme that, as I'm getting into this, and you have multi-generational mm-hmm. people here. One of the interesting observations is the two generations generally complement each other in a big way. They're not, yes. We don't have two parties that are identical to one another, right? Right. So how are you and your approach different than Howard's? <laughs> <laughs> I guess
1: uh, we're similar in a lot of ways. We're very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, I think I have trouble letting go or saying something is acceptable. You know, like when we were building the Kinsey Row Cleaners, and we had a little problem on the first batch, and I was out there, you know, pulling my hair out, and uh, and Dad was like, it's good enough, I'll call him. You know, he he was always there to look at the big picture where I can get so, I'm such a perfectionist, you know, I can hone in and see this, and he was able to pull me back. You know, with the reality on that, and say it's no big deal. I'm sure they'll accept that revision. Mm-hmm. So, uh, stuff like that, and t- to see him under pressure and how well he handles it, you know, is is always uh, something I wish that I had. Uh, we are we are very very similar, mm-hmm. and I think maybe uh, the biggest difference is that he he sees that things don't have to be exactly perfect sometimes and and I'm determined
0: to get them there. To get them there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Words that I've heard about Howard and see if you know you agree with this I've heard the word genius, brilliant, brilliance, mm-hmm. um, talking about as the inventor and tinkerer and mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. doing things in the middle of the night right yeah yep. is, is that those accurate? Yes words? they are they're, they're yeah. very accurate and okay.
1: it's just been been something to really marvel at to see the way his mind works, and I hope he passed on a little bit of that mm-hmm. to me. But uh, he sure left an awful big pair of shoes for me to, you know, try yeah. to fill up. So
0: that by itself is a hard thing to to work for and be in partnership mm-hmm. with that type of yes. individual, right? It, yes, it,
1: it can be. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I was going to
0: ask a question here. These guys will laugh at this because I'm just going to ask the question. Well. What's it like to have to work for and follow a guy who's essentially a genius? Right. My dad's listening to this. He goes, you already know the answer to that question. So. <laughs> you know, it, uh, it's, I think it leaves, because
1: we all want our dad's approval, you know, and it leaves such a high bar to reach, you know, that it can be very frustrating, you know, to think, well, I'm never going to measure up, or I made this mistake and I put a scar on his legacy or whatever, but I, I finally have, have gotten okay with just being glad to have witnessed it and to learn from it, and and hope that someday I'll be able to do something similar for the industry. But I, I think the only uh, world-changing mind in the family is him. I just hope to uh, be able to continue it, keep our name, we protect our name. Slightest little problem and we We don't want to hear the guys unhappy now you're gonna my phone will probably start ringing you know after this and and in all honesty, we like to know that while you're planning, we'll make a decision. then you know if we can't make it work, we'll buy it back. but in some cases, it to me, it's very personal uh, that I can't make an attachment that satisfies him for that situation on on that planner. And I think that connection is because of Dad's innovation, and it's so much easier if I was one of the, my competitors. I could just say, OK, sorry, send it back. But me, I just have that drive. I, I want to make it work. And, and I think I'm successful sometimes at that. And then other times, you get a guy that he's not going to be happy. you know, And, and so we just you know write the check. And, Put them back and sell them for used, or rework them or something, and then uh, he can go say all he wants about how crappy the attachment was for his situation, but he can't say we didn't take care of him. Uh, We take that, we take a lot of pride in that. Uh, Standing in the footsteps of a genius, it's not something that's easily done. I don't think. I would was hoping that I could uh, shine some light on some of the people that have been part of our success, like Phil Needham. You know, he uh, he's helped shape some of our products, does a great job about promoting them. We've got David Moeller, Moeller Ag, mm-hmm. same thing. We don't always hit the nail right on the head and we send something out and they're like, no, it needs to be like this. and. Yeah, as a younger man, I'd say, no, it doesn't, you know, but now we're like, yeah, okay, you're the expert. We listen to those guys, the leaders, the, in- the innovators, the game changers. And one of my neighbors, Brandon Hunt, he made a comment when we were going to, uh, preparing for a meeting at one of the OEMs about possibly partnering with OEM. He said, you need to be sure and drive home the fact that you listen to us and you make changes as needed and the other guys are so big and arrogant maybe in his mind that uh, you know they won't listen they won't budge yeah they have the AgriPower stores in uh, West Kentucky
0: and part of the H r yes okay, H&R. Gotcha. Yeah. gotcha. yeah
1: Steve yeah. Hunts son uh, we worked with him on, on several projects
0: you guys were all kind of ground zero at no-till all right yeah yeah. yeah. Mr. Keaton and uh,
1: uh, Harry Young over in the next county, his, his son John's a good customer of ours, he had one. He had the second smart clean system, beta smart clean system, and there's a big plaque out there that uh, says, you know, Harry Young, father no-till or whatever, and we didn't invent no-till farming, you know, I was like, well, let's show this and say our neighbor did. Right, and, and one county over. Right? One county over, yeah. So one of the John Deere engineers that you know, I used to love when they would come down to prototype stuff. You know, we, we I, that was just, I couldn't sleep at night. I was so excited, you know, to, to be involved with changing something and designing something for a corn planter. But we were sitting around talking one day, and he said, you know, between your dad, Eugene Keaton, and Harry Young, more changes, more innovations to planters and no-till farming have come out of this little area than anywhere else in the world, you know, and, and first now you've got precision with all the innovations they've made, but that really stuck with me. I think that's when I really started uh, looking at Dad with awe, you know, and uh,
0: realizing what I'd gotten myself into, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Your dad said a number of really cool things here. I'll have to, to kick this to you, but he clearly very proud of the technical skills, self-taught. I mean, he made a big list here, mm-hmm. but he did talk about how the support through that suit, you know, the injustice and, you know, mm-hmm. big lesson for your whole family and all right. that. And yeah. You said it very well. You'd prefer not to have gone through those times, but we, we, we get tested and that's how we grow, Exactly. Right? Iron sharpens iron.
1: And, and that's exactly what that was.
0: Another way of asking that question, it came up to me, was, I was at a ph- 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 pharmacopoeia manufacturer's dinner. Mm-hmm. It was just really well put that the successor generation, you know, guy about our age, and mm-hmm. was talking about his uh, dad or his father-in-law, I can't remember exactly what it was, but he said, you know, I couldn't have done what he did, but this next generation, mm-hmm. I don't think he could have done what what he did as the, yeah. as the guy who came in next and, and took this small genius invention, but, but brought it out to the world and did something bigger and better. There you go.
1: Very interesting. And I think that's probably somewhat true, you know, in in, in our situation. And it's been a great ride. And I'm very thankful to, again, you know, you just can't do what we did without the hand of God. Mm-hmm. There's no way, yeah. you know, so. And he was there through the bad times, you know, through that, ride home, and and it definitely, So I was raised by a very humble man, but it definitely kept me in check and still does today.
0: And now for a special bonus, a separate quick hit interview our team did with Howard Martin in his legendary Kentucky farm shop back in 2011. In the next six minutes, you'll hear Howard describe his meeting with the awe-inspiring Eugene Keaton, how he got into the manufacturing game with his invention with an unusual re-licensing agreement and some unchanging pieces of wisdom. Enjoy.
3: 1984, Eugene Keaton offered it to planter manufacturers that specialized in conservation type planting. They weren't interested. One of them I think it would have saved him. He's out of business now. They're they're out of business now. So I took it and threw it down at the end of the shed and Eugene Keaton, who had invented the finger pickup mechanism, Eugene, I was just in awe of him. I would not even go up to him and say, Hey, I'm Howard Martin, I'd like to get to know you. I mean he lived five miles across the field, but he had better land and he was he drove around town in a Mark five and he was this Farm Quarterly. He was written up in there and I used to sit and I lived in the little house, the tenant house over on the farm back here in the hills and I'd read that over and over and over. Of course I was always eat up with reading and wanting to be something that I wasn't capable of being. I've always been over my nose up to my eyeballs in jobs bigger than I was. Never had regular employment. I worked three weeks three months before my wife and I got married in a factory, a stinky old factory. And I got that old cutting fluid off of the cutting tools. And I was living at home with mom and I was the baby boy. And I came home and mom was so disturbed that her baby boy was dirty and all soiled up. She put me in bed and covered me up. About three weeks I thought, you know, I'm out of here. That's the last gainful, what you might say, well, last regular employment I've never had, you know. I've always been on the edge. But anyway, it kind of helps sharpen your senses. It's the part we're talking about was John Deere's. Dave Rylander, was, was his, it was his first project. He's seeding engineer, he's still with John Deere. And they couldn't figure out how to make it the way he and I decided that it should be made. Dave lived with me here in the home all throughout those years when he'd be down here doing engineering up to three weeks at a time. and So they sent it out to China, and the Chinese milled those Arch pockets, they milled the shape on the end, they got some material harder than was needed from the Japanese and they made two containers of those which is about three thousand pair and one container came to Moline, Illinois and the factory manager called me up one day and said you know Howard that's a good idea but it's not that good we're not going to make it. Who do you suggest that we get so that we can recover some of our engineering expense and of course I was going to get a small token royalty. I said, Yetter, that's who I think of when I think of, you know, even back then they had that, for land's sake, remember that was one of their slogans? They said, well, yeah, we we work with them guys, so they're off and running, and next thing I know, I'm sitting there thinking, the train is leaving, the (laughs) caboose, I can still see it. So I call them up, and I said, what about me? Yeah, yeah, found out they had these parts, it's going to have scrap. So I had a little leverage. I didn't have enough nerve, so I shook and quaked a little, and I talked to the manager and he said, yeah. I said, what about royalties? He said, well, uh, we'll send you an agreement Said it will be 5%. I said, 5%? You're only giving me a dollar a piece. Why the big difference? He said, it's all that engineering expense we've got in it. Well I had fed and watered and entertained with old stories like I am y'all, the engineer his first project, this young 20-something-year-old man. And here I am, I'm going to have to pay $7.50. You don't have to tell John Deere about this. <laughs> for everyone I sell, and I'm going to get a dollar for everyone. They let each and everyone they want to sell, okay? Keep your nose down, and it's no end to how much you can accomplish if you don't mind who gets the credit. It's always bragged on Mr. Keaton for being an encourager. I always bragged on Harry Young for being an inspiration. I'd find anybody when I made any kind of talk about anything regarding this business that I could brag on except myself. And I won a few hearts, and then I won a few more, and had some occasions where we couldn't get product to customer, and we had a rep in a certain area, and he was telling them, They'd have it in two weeks and so on and so on and so forth, and finally the dealer, he calls this big company, which I actually operated for nine years out of the upstairs room because I was afraid. And he asked the question, the dealer did, he's from Reynolds, Indiana. He said, who's lying to me, you or this rep? I said, me, sir. I am the liar. Made a friend, a customer. I said, all he's telling you is what I'm telling him. And I didn't even bother to tell him that all I was telling the rep was what my supplier was telling me because if you want to be a man, you don't pass the buck. And that's what I wanted to be. And that's what's built our brand. We have a return on fixed assets of approximately 100 to 195% per year. And that's attributable to the brand, goes back to the honesty, which goes back to some instances when I could have folded and kept the money because the customers wanted the money back because we'd made a part that didn't fit and we didn't know what we were doing. And I said, send them all back and we'll send you a brand new model free of charge. Took everything we made that year. But that investment has made us millions of dollars and it was all in the Bible. I didn't need to read how to win friends and influence people, which I did, and the power of positive thinking, and the seven habits of highly effective people, and how I raised myself from failure to success through selling and and dozens of others. Didn't need any of it. All I needed was a proper understanding of the scripture and particularly the proverbs and an in-depth study of how Jesus worked twelve imperfect men to build the most long-lasting organization in the history of the world a church. It's 2,000 years old and is still in business.
0: Thanks to Steve for his story and Howard for his time in the shop with our team. And also to Osmundson Manufacturing for supporting our travels and production time for these recordings. Visit them at www.osmundson.com. And thanks to Joe Kinsley who poured through more than 50 pages of transcripts and hours and hours of audio file to thread these recordings together for you today in one episode. Thanks for joining us today. Till next time, I'm Mike Lessiter of Farm Equipment and No-Till Farmer, signing out on How We Did It, Conversations with Ag Equipments Entrepreneurs.